Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This is our third week of our series, Biblical Perspective. Lead pastor Jeremy Flanagan will explore how a biblical perspective should impact how we view the subject of truth. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's Next Steps. We did a survey asking what are the things when it comes to sharing the gospel, what are the conversations that you're afraid to get into? And because you don't want to get into those conversations, it makes you more reluctant to step out and talk about your faith. And so, you know, your answers are what we're preaching on this month. So uh, anyway, so two weeks ago, we talked about LGBTQIA plus issues. Uh, last week, Patrick came and he shared his experiences, just really uh, how do you share the gospel? And today we're talking about postmodernism, but really what, what he deals with is really called a more post-Christian world. It's postmodernist, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, but post-Christian in that most people he comes in contact with in Olympia and in that area have no church experience whatsoever. Not them, not their families, not their grandparents, that truly they have a view of Christianity from what they maybe either see on television or things that they've heard, but they don't have any relational experience with it at all. And so Christianity and being exposed to it is new for them. And so uh, that was great to talk about last week. And then today, like I said, we're talking about postmodernism because it's one of those things that people asked, you know, how did we get to this point? How do we get to where uh, everything is questioned or, you know, now that everything is, is debated or turned upside down? And so, um, when we look at the subject we did two weeks ago, and uh, if you missed that, you can go back and take a look on our website, the sermon's there. There's a great book that I mentioned, um, took me a little bit over a week to get all those links online, uh, but there's some links on the website, really great book, very short read, it'll take you one to two hours to read it, tops, it's, it's almost, I would call it a booklet more than a book, but written by somebody um, who uh, has uh, different uh, same-sex attractions, who's also a minister and views it from a biblical perspective. So it's one of the most thorough biblically and also compassionate and understanding reads that you'll ever have. And so uh, that, that book is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry. And so obviously, I don't agree with what everybody says. I don't agree with everything Mitchell says, especially Mitchell. But I sure don't agree with everything that every Christian writer out there says or believes but on that subject, that book specifically, I mean, there's some other things that he sees on the topic that we disagree with, but that book is a great read. And so I've got another one I'll share with you today on, on this subject as well. But when you are looking at all of the different, you know, we'll call, them, we'll call it theory, all of the different theories, all the different things that uh, are debated hot and, and heavy in our society today, they really have their roots in postmodernism. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that today, and I want to share scripture on both sides about how do we engage these difficult conversations? How do we engage conversations when we know people disagree with us, or we're just afraid people will disagree with us, or we just are trying to learn more about things ourselves? And so um, as we go through this today, um, I want you to understand I'm only going to be touching this topic, you know, on a very shallow level. Uh, I do have multiple resources that I'll share, multiple uh, links uh, that I'll share on the uh, blog, hopefully faster than like eight days later, but uh, I will be getting those up for you to take a look at. So in a world that's increasingly opposed to the teachings out of the Bible, how do you engage with people? 
So I want to start Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7. And this is true. It's absolutely true. But I'm worried that sometimes taking this passage and only this passage will keep us from engaging at all. Because it says in verse 7 of Proverbs 9, anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. But correct the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous, and they will learn even more. So when you see these scriptures, it's very, very true. When you go to the Bible and you read, don't cast your pearls before swine, it's kind of the same idea here is that your time can be much more productive investing and trying to help people who actually want help or are open-minded or are starting at the same place as you that say, I want what God wants in my life. Now, when it comes down to it and you start talking about specifics, you might find out that they maybe don't want what God wants in their life as much as they thought. But anyway, you at least started from the same point of saying that God's going to be our basis and we're going to go with our conversation from there. And so this says, don't rebuke a mocker. If you correct the wicked, you'll get hurt. And so you will be more productive in your time spent on trying to help people that want to be helped. And that's with almost anything in life. You know, after a couple of decades of ministry, um, I deal with a lot of, of people who are, need help financially or who are homeless or others. And one of the, the things I found is that the people that we would be ready to help are the least likely to ask for it. And sometimes I have to go to them and force my way in for us to be able to help them. Um, and then we get a lot of people who ask that, um, that that's, that's just what they do. Um, there's, there's one guy in particular that uh, he, every pastor I know knows him. And we, we all know him. We all know him by name because that's his daily job is just to go to a new church. Uh, and so, you know, um, there are some people that you help because they'll take that help and they'll run with it. And here it's talking about, you know, giving advice or trying to impart wisdom on somebody. And it's the same thing. If somebody is wise, it's somebody who wants to hear it and wants to follow what God wants for their life. But if someone's a mocker, that means that they're already mocking your morality or mocking God or they're disparaging God. Then the chances of you trying to correct them, and, and rebuke isn't having a discussion, right? Rebuke isn't saying, oh, let's talk to each other and reason this out. Rebuke isn't saying, I want to understand you, and I'm going to tell you what I believe so you can understand me. No, rebuke is going to them and saying, you are wrong here. You need to correct this in this way. This is how we're moving forward. And that's just not going to work. Um, that's, and if you've tried it, I mean, it's why everybody wins every argument on Facebook, right? You've convinced every single post you've ever made on social media, you've convinced everybody every time, Right? No, because everybody reads it and they already have their preconceived notions. And so rarely do you actually have a productive conversation in those ways. Um, now, many times in the New Testament, however, we're told to be ready to speak. So Proverbs 9 is true is that if you're trying to correct, if you're trying to go in and have a corrective conversation with somebody who's mocking you or mocking God, that's not going to be productive. But Colossians 4 and verse 5, it says, Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Now, we may take this passage, these two verses, to mean 
that we should speak in such a way that our beliefs will never come back at us with negative response. You know, that we should speak, and, and what did it say, that to be gracious and attractive or seasoned with salt or what is what uh, kind of the, the original Greek was, and um, so that you may have the right response for everyone. And it sounds like if we do it that way, right, if, if we come back and we're gracious, we're seasoned with salt, we're, you know, fit for a purpose, and that way we can have the right response for everyone, that means they'll have the right response to us. But that's just not true. And reading this passage, you can't even take it for truth because let's start a couple of verses earlier. Colossians 4, but instead of starting in verse 5, verse 2. And this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, he tells them, devote yourself to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in chains. Pray that I'll proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So, Paul telling you to be gracious and you know, attractive, seasoned with salt in your speech so you'll have the right response to everybody was doing so from prison in chains so it obviously didn't work out for him that people didn't oppose him. Right? It obviously wasn't coming from a place that, hey, if you follow my instructions, then everything's going to be okay, and you can avoid conflict, you can avoid stress, you can avoid you know, strained relationships, broken relationships, you can do all of that, right? No, Paul is, that's the furthest thing from his mind. The absolute furthest thing from his mind, as you'll see from more scripture later. And so what I want you to accept today is if you are going to engage in cultural discussions, you can expect pushback, at the very least. You can expect hard questions. You can expect disagreement. And at times, you can expect such harsh disagreement that it, it, it may get really, really uncomfortable. It may lead to attacks. It may lead to people disparaging you. It may lead to people trying to take any word or anything you've ever done or said and magnifying it or twisting it and just trying to keep you on the defense of the entire time, trying to get you fired, trying to get people to, to hate you, all right? We see that every day, right? We see it every single day. And I'm telling you that standing for cultural issues will do that, but standing for God will do that too because ultimately morality comes from God, from his word. It is all a representation of his divine character. And so if you stand for God and truly stand for who he is, not the parts of him you like or the parts of him that are simple, but truly stand for who he is, then you will get pushback. And if you're not getting pushback, then are you standing for him openly? And if you are, are you only doing the parts that you like? Because I'm telling you at some point in time, if you're standing for him openly, and you're doing and you're standing for him completely, all of his word, then you will get pushed back, even on the things that you think are the nice stuff. Saying that he is God will get you pushed back. Saying that he's the only way to heaven will get you pushed back. Right? So you don't have to wade deep into cultural discussions to think that only then are people not gonna like what you say. No, it starts way earlier than that. Way earlier than that. So, here's the next 10 minutes that I'm going to limit myself to. 
because I would love to do this for the next two hours. For the next 10 minutes, I'm going to talk about postmodernism. And I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into it, all right? A little bit, and a lot of you are looking at your watches, and you know I'm already lying. But I'm going to hold as close as I can, as close as I can to it. So when it comes to history, when it comes to the way the human mind works, when it comes to the way society evolves and, and everything else that happens through it, what you're seeing a lot today, typically you would call um, theory, all right? Theory of, of any kind. But kind of theory is, is kind of the broader term that you would refer to it as. And so when you look at the, the applied theory or applied postmodern uh, principles that you see today uh, that are coupled with activism, whether it's queer theory, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's intersectional feminism, whether it's fat theory, whether it's disability studies, whether it's any of these things, they have a base in them and the idea of theory that gets its roots from postmodernism. Now, anybody today that is a proponent of any of these applied theories will, will say that they're not postmodernists. And they're, true, they're, they're correct because they've taken postmodern principles and they have added to and morphed them. But the root comes into postmodernism. See, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, the whole thing was there's my truth and there's your truth. There's no truth. There's just my truth and there's your truth. Everyone has their own truth. And we'll get why those, those comments, where they came from here in a second. Today, it's there's one truth, it's our truth, and you're a, a, a racist or a homophobe or a bigot or a hateful person if you don't completely agree with our truth. And if you even disagree with it to have a discussion, it simply means you're not engaging with it because if you engaged with it, truly engaged with it, you would see how true we are, and so you wouldn't disagree at all. And, and, and when I, I say these things, these are scholarly things that are written and accepted not just in the books that you know and you've heard about that are sold everywhere, but in the academic papers that have gone on for years is that you can't even disagree with theory because it just shows that you're either hiding your own biases or you're not accepting of them or you're not truly engaging because if you truly engaged, i.e., you would accept and believe. Now, wait one second, and before we move on, I want you to think what else that that sounds like and you can make that argument for. Could it be religion? Yes, it could, because guess what? I believe about Christianity. I believe it is true. I believe it is absolutely true. I believe anyone that disagrees with it is wrong. They just don't know they're wrong, and I wish that if they would simply engage with Scripture more and that they would see the understanding behind it and they would remove whatever biases they have or whatever roadblocks they have put there to faith or that other people have done in hurting them or past experiences, that they would engage with the Scripture and that they would accept the message of Jesus Christ. And so what you are seeing now has gone from instead of intellectual endeavors and debate and ways of people trying to understand the world to really almost a, a hyper-religious fervor that you would have seen in puritanical America or you would have seen in theocracies or you still see today in, in those places where you must believe and if you don't believe, you're made by force, right? We will shun you, we will shame you, we will try and take everything away from you. I mean, we've seen religion do that throughout history, right? We've seen religion do that. 
I mean, we've seen religion do that to other religion. If you look back at what I believe are our, um, are our ancestors in the faith, they were persecuted worse by other Christians than those Christians persecuted anyone else, right? And so what you're seeing today is much more of a religious fervor of people saying that there is our truth of theory, and then everything that spawns out from that, and all the different ones are different, and if you disagree with it, then it's simply because how more or less horrible of a person you are that you won't engage with it. Now, all of it is rooted in postmodernism, but postmodernism, in its essence, is that nothing is true, pretty much. That if there is a structure in the world, if there's a government in the world, if there's a religion in the world, if there's anything else structurally in the world, that it is not true, um, that all of that is false. I actually have a definition from postmodernism. I'll even share my source on this, which I would I will do so sparingly, but every once in a while I'll look at Wikipedia to see what they say, and they actually gave a really good definition of it today. Um, it's an intellectual stance or mode of discourse defined by an attitude of skepticism toward what it describes as the grand narratives and ideologies of modernism, as well as opposition to epistemic certainty and the stability of meaning. Now that we all fully understand this, we can move on. So even when you get into the definition of their own terms, it is wrapped in such terminology that it, it's meant to obscure. When you, especially when you get into theory today, it is meant to obscure. It is meant to cloud uh, what it is. Actually, when you get into some things like uh, critical race theory, you get into... Um, intersexual feminism, they have very, very strong exacts and definitions of things. When you get into queer theory, it's, it's actually defined and intentional on making it undefinable. I mean, they say this out loud. I'm not, I'm not creating this out of thin air. Is that they want it to be undefinable because the goal is to make the ideas of gender, or the ideas of sexuality, less concrete, right? And so, um, and so, they all have different takes on the idea of theory, but in postmodernism, the base is there, and it started really back in the 60s. And just on this definition, just real quick, discourses are huge, and I'll talk about that just for a second, but discourses are just the way we talk about things, right? It's just the way we talk about things. Um, and then the grand narratives are the way we talk about things. If we say something like, you know, uh, hard work and dedication lead to success. Well, I just created a discourse that anybody who disagrees with me on that, that I have created an oppressive system to them because it didn't work for them or because um, they have tried it and I got the same results or because if they view it a different way, they view it more of collectivism instead of individual. So that's just a discourse of a grand narrative, right? So that's a very simplistic example. Um, and then uh, modernism is just the idea of coming out of the dark ages into the great enlightenment. And so modernism has been the last few hundred years with uh, a lot of cultural advances, with a lot of societal advances, with a lot of uh, civil rights advances, with a lot of medical knowledge, understanding the world, understanding medicine, understanding biology, seeing freedom being, uh, being given much more widely throughout the world. Um, that is through the great enlightenment and modernism um, you just can't argue with it. We have, we have seen the greatest advances in mankind um, in, in over a millennium, 
And we've seen freedom throughout parts of the world that have never seen it. We've seen freedom in our own country for all people. We have seen so many different great things happen through it. Um, but postmodernism says, yeah, it didn't really work. And so that's why we're, we're moving on. All of that that you say is good, we don't think it's good because it's not bringing us the result we want. And then, as, then it says, as well as opposition to epistemic certainty. It's a certainty of knowledge. Epistemic just means of knowledge or from knowledge. So more or less, we're against anything that you say you can know for certain um, and the stability of meaning. If, if you've seen any of the stories about people saying that we need to change the way I'm not talking like common core, all right, about different ways to do math to get to the same answer. I'm just saying that, that, uh, that we need to not, you know, judge people if they don't get that 2 plus 2 equals 4 or that, um, that we can't rely on, you know, the things that we have known to be certain scientifically proven for decades or even centuries. If you've seen things like that, they come out of the, the whole postmodern thought of looking at discourses and saying, all right, for the last few hundred years, we've figured out a lot medically. You know, antibiotics, mostly a good thing. You know, the ending of slavery, good thing. Um, seeing uh, more, you know, uh, democracy and uh, the ending of most monarchies where people have more control over their lives, good thing. Um, seeing cultural advances, technological advances, everything else. Oh, yeah, those are good things. However, everything we learned during this time period was learned by, typically, cultures, if you saw with colonialism, and anti-colonialism is another form of theory, um, through the British Empire and then through Americans and, and everything else, through a societies mostly dominated by white heterosexual men. So, technically, everything I say to you, you can go ahead and dismiss right now because I don't have standing to say it because I am a white heterosexual man. Uh, and that's the view, is that if I disagree with it, it's only because of my own biases is that I'm trying to convince you that the scientific discoveries we've made over the past couple of hundred years, that the civil rights movement we had in this country, that the, the different things that we've seen spread across the globe, that all of those things, I'm trying to convince you they are good. Why? Because those discourses of grand narratives helped maintain power for white heterosexual men for a few hundred years. Now, it doesn't matter that actually mathematics and science and everything else was prevalent in Middle Eastern and Oriental and African societies far before it was prevalent in, you know, in Anglo societies in Europe. It doesn't matter that that's where the basis of, of all mathematics and everything else came from. We're just looking at the last few hundred years because all that really matters is we want to change what society is today. Postmodernism did that by saying that everything is wrong and we can't trust on any systems, right? Most, most postmodernist um, German philosophers, French philosophers really, um, who, uh, who a lot of theory is based on, um, they came out of the World War II era, the World War I to World War II era, um, most of them were, were academic Marxists in practice. They weren't really, you know, involved in it too much. Academics usually haven't been involved in it as much. And then through World War II and then watching what 
happened with socialism and, and Marxism in Germany under the Nazi party and then watching what happened with Marxism and communism in the Soviet Union, they were disillusioned because they had felt that that was a, that Marxism was a type of lifestyle that was going to bring about utopia. Because they felt it was going to bring about utopia, and then they see the atrocities com uh, committed by the Marxists in Germany and then the Marxists in the Soviet Union, they became disillusioned, and in the 60s, they started saying, well, it's all false. Not what we believed was true is false, and so we're going to admit that something else is true or look for something else. No, they just deconstructed. That's the word you'll see. It's deconstruction, tearing it all down, burn it all down. If you hear burn it all down, if you hear that silence is violence, if you hear that you're attacking me with your words, if you hear anything else that's coming out today culturally, all of that started with postmodernism back in the 60s, even a little bit before then. That's where it all began. However, what became today and what you're seeing now is because in the 80s, they said, well, these postmodernisms are just out there crying on a ledge and griping that everything is worthless, but they're not doing anything. And so that's when people with more of the, still the, some of those ideologies, uh, Marxist ideologies, typically took theory and just took it and converted it into activism, and then really the last 10 years, it's just exploded. And so I'm going to have all that you want on this and more. I'll stay and talk to you after this. I'll share anything you want. I can give you all of this. There's a great book. I've got a slide. You can put it up there. Now, while I said the last book I recommended two weeks ago will take you one to two hours, this will make your mind melt and your ears bleed. Uh, and so I'm through eight chapters of 10. Uh, and it is, it is very uh, academic is what I will call it. Extremely interesting. Um, and um, these individuals, by the way, uh, I don't know about Helen Pluckrose. I know about James Lindsay. Um, extremely, like, political. You'd say, oh, they're writing this book calling cynical theories, and they've got, you know, the, the rainbow flag on the glasses and everything else. James Lindsay, at least, I can tell you, is very pro-LGBT. He hated Trump. He uh, is an atheist, used to be an atheism activist, as he called it. Now he says, I'm not as much of an angry atheist anymore. I'm okay with people having faith. But it's still very much, there is no God and the natural progression of mankind is not to believe in God. Which actually, he and I agree because he understands human nature from sociology, I understand it from the Bible, and then I also have the book of Revelation that tells me that's where we're headed. And so with that, James and I are on the same page. Um, we're just on the wrong side of belief. And so I'm, I'm sharing a book with you by people who do not believe in God, actively fought against and hated God for years, uh, and disagree with with you know, a whole lot of what I believe in, but what they see from this is how theory derived from postmodernism is destroying the things that they want to try and help. Because think of all those things, all the different theories I talked about. I mean, let's start with the easy ones, disability studies. Who in the world doesn't want to make life better for people who are disabled and help them to be able to fully enjoy society, right? And so, well, how can you be against that? In the same way that then they will say, well, how can you be against, you know, Black Lives Matter? Well, I believe absolutely Black Lives Matter. I just don't believe in the organization because they, they as an organization, do so many things that I don't agree with in saying that they don't support the nuclear family and besides the political, social things of Marxism and everything else. 
Um, but when you start saying that we don't support the, the idea that the nuclear family is the best thing, well, that's God's plan. So I, I'm, I'm not going to support something that openly is against God's plan. Whether it's fat studies, which is just trying to get people to be, not just be more acceptive of people who are overweight. Trust me, I can benefit from that. But to say, it would get my doctor to quit telling me to lose weight, right? Is that we shouldn't tell people that there's a problem that can come health-wise from obesity, which I have no problem. I take like eight pills a day because of obesity. Anyway, so, uh, but you look at all these different things and you see them, and yes, and people have been horrifically cruel and mean to people from a LGBTQIA plus lifestyles, and that's not how we should have ever treated anyone. But we don't have to agree that it's okay. We don't have to agree that that's God's plan, because scripturally, Romans chapter 1, we talked about two weeks ago, it's, it's just not. And so, but I can believe that that's not God's plan, just like so many other things that aren't God's plan, and I still love that individual and treat them with kindness and respect. But I'm not going to go down the path of accepting things that are against the Word of God. And so, when you look at all of these different things, and you can read that book, it's an excellent read. Read the other one first, because you'll like me a lot more. You'll, you'll say, Jeremy, why did you force me to do this? Because you're halfway through that book. But it's an excellent read, but it'll help you understand things. Now, I'm gonna have a lot of blog posts that are gonna give you a lot of articles. They're much shorter, give you a good synopsis of all of this stuff if you wanna deep dive into it and understand it. If you don't wanna do that, great. I'm gonna give you what we as believers need to do. So, You asked why. Why has our culture and society gotten to this point where everything is questioned? Um, and this has been where it started, why it started, what it's evolved into, and then the next two weeks as we talk about some more things, uh, we're gonna talk about critical race theory, we're gonna talk about uh, political climate and having discourses with people. Um, as we talk about those, this will be a basis for it. So, number one, if you say, why is everything so hard? How can I have discussions with people in a world like this? Know what you believe. If you remember, that was the first point two weeks ago. Know what you believe. Colossians chapter two and verse six. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, when you read this and it starts talking about empty philosophies with high-sounding nonsense, you may say, oh, yeah, the stuff I see on the news or something like that. Actually, this passage was just talking about people within Christianity who were trying to get them to believe that you had to do certain rituals or that you had to perform certain functions or that you had to make certain sacrifices. 
And because they would say, well, yeah, your faith in Jesus is good, but really, unless you have this full experience or you do these other things, you don't really have faith in Jesus. And so Paul was telling them, don't get caught up in whatever they say that may sound good or it may sound right if it disagrees with truth. We talked about this two weeks ago. You've got to decide. If you believe that the Bible is mostly true, but there's part of it that you say to yourself that you are willing to accept that it's false. It can't be 99% and 1%. It's, it's 100 or nothing. Because at the point that you have said, I will take this as false, and I will allow either my own feelings about the matter or other people's um, you know, study or other people's or even my own study or whatever it is, if you're going to allow that to get you to not believe the Bible, then it's not long before there will be another and another and another thing that you will include in that category. And so you have to understand and know what you believe. Part of knowing what you believe is accepting accepting things that Christians have believed and have done that are wrong. All right? Part of that is knowing and accepting those because there's plenty. Like I said, people that I consider forefathers in, in the faith and ancestors in the faith were hunted down and trapped and killed by other Christians. And so it, it has happened. It has happened, and the problem with this world, always, the next two weeks, what the answer you're going to get is that the Bible has the solution that, that everyone is searching for. The Bible has a solution that everyone is searching for. You want to look at the ideas of homosexuality? We talked about two weeks ago. The problem that we've had in talking about that subject is that we've been so lax on all the other parts of morality that God talks about. We either don't talk about them or don't want to admit that those sins are wrong just in the same way that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. They're all, they're all wrong. And so whenever we only talk about one and then dismiss our own or those of our friends or people we're close to, that makes us look like hypocrites mostly because we are in those moments. When you look at the idea of racism and everything else, Christianity should have been at the forefront of this. We've preached this here before. Race doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. That's a biblical, a very biblical set of facts that all humanity is created in the image of God. There's one race, the human race, that's it. Are there different ethnicities? Absolutely, right? Are there differences in ethnicities biologically and, and everything else when it comes to you know, skin color or, or, or hair or uh, the way that different ethnic groups um, uh, react medically to some diseases or to others or to some medications or to others? A absolutely. There are differences there. There are ethnic differences in culture from the people who say, share the same ethnic diversity when it comes to you know, those physical factors. But there is one race. And the fact that Christians, believers in Christ, throughout history and even in recent history in our country have allowed that to not be taught and have held practices of slavery. And it wasn't just in America, okay? It wasn't just in America. It was everywhere. And it was of, of pretty much every, every ethnicity and culture around the world has had it. But Christians should have been the one that put it into it way sooner than we did. Right? Should have put it into it way sooner than we did. So a lot of the things that we face are from a lack of Christians knowing the Bible, living out the Bible, and being willing to give up parts of themselves to stand on the Bible. And that's also the problem we're going to have today. 
But you have to know what you believe, and part of that is also knowing where Christianity has been wrong. Accept that, own that, and move on. Because guess what? You're not responsible for what Christians did wrong 100 years ago. But you are responsible if you're going to make excuses for it, or if you're going to deny it, or if you're going to carry on something that's wrong. And that's whether, no matter what side you look at. Point number two, with postmodernism and in these you know, discussions, you are virtually never going to win by simple argument. These are spiritual matters. This is where Proverbs 9 comes in, because if someone is a mocker of somebody, that means that they are mocking your morality, your faith, or God, or something else. They are already against it, right? I love James Lindsay's book, um, mostly because I'm doing the audiobook, and Helen Pluckrose is very British, and so she's got a neat accent uh, while I'm listening to it. But I like his book, but I'm not going to sit down with James Lindsay and con- convince him of anything about God. He's been studying this for a long time, and he has made up his mind. But I would still share Scripture with him, hoping that the Holy Spirit would do something with it. Right? See, in the end, we can have arguments, and we can have conversations, and we can talk about what facts we know and the things we understand but sharing Scripture is what carries the weight of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 18 says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the Scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called to God by salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. In short, the gospel sounds foolish to people who don't believe it until the point in time that they open their mind and their heart to allow the Holy Spirit's conviction to reach them. And so there's no amount of proof text that I can give somebody. By the way, if somebody doesn't believe in God, how effective do you think, well, the Bible says is going to be? You know, if they don't believe in it, then how effective is that going to be? Now, I still share Scripture, but I don't do it from an authoritative standpoint because that's like someone telling me, saying, well, I want to have the freedom to do this in, in our country. And someone says, well, in Sharia law, it says this. Well, If I lived in Iran, I would worry about what that said, but I'm not going to do that here, right? If I go to another country, if I go to, you know, Singapore, I'm going to figure out what their laws say, but until then, I'm going to figure out what's in the Constitution and the statutes of Arkansas. And so we can't expect to just win arguments when ultimately it is a heart matter, and heart matters have to be won by the Holy Spirit. But you share Scripture Understanding that they may reject it then, but the Holy Spirit carries with that scripture every time it's mentioned, every time it's read, every time it's heard. We share God with them every time we share scripture, even if we know they're going to reject it. But do it in love, do it in kindness, and leave scripture with them. 
that's a lot more powerful than arguing with them at, on, you know, over and over and over again. And the last thing, you must be ready to answer. You must. And as Paul says here, have the potential to suffer for it. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, a lot of people. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Just simply this. Treat people with kindness and respect, even when they're not treating you with respect. Understand that they're coming from a different place than you are in faith or belief. Even if you share a faith in Christ, y'all might still believe very differently on different things. In this room, we're going to believe very different on, on, on various things. Some of you aren't going to agree with some of the statements I made today. And I understand that and I know that and I still love you. Maybe you love me. I don't know. But I'm willing to talk to you about it. I'm willing to, even if we disagree at the end of it, still love you. And if we do this, and if we're eager to do good, if we worship Christ as the Lord of our life, when someone asks about our hope as a believer, we must be ready to explain it, even if the way they ask about it is an accusation. Even if the way they bring up questions of our faith is an attack. Even when they're trying to get us to make statements about belief, or statements about scripture, or statements about morality, and we know that they're just waiting for our answer to take it and then just beat us over the head with, it, with a club. We must still be ready to answer. Because guess what? That person who's asking me questions about faith and morality, wanting to attack me, they just gave me an opportunity to share the gospel. And I'm appreciative of that. I'm not going to be scared of it. I might in the back of my mind be worried about what's going to be said on Facebook later. I might be worried about somebody who may try and go talk behind my back to friends or everybody else. But that person who's asking me questions about my faith or anything else that deals with morality that comes out of God's word, they're giving me an opportunity. They're asking me to share scripture with them. They're asking me to place the Holy Spirit in our conversation at that moment in time, why would I not prepare myself and be ready to answer? Why would I shy away from it? Well, I know why. Because we all get scared and we're all worried about the backlash or what people are going to say. Do they think I'm a hateful person? Do they think I'm a bigot? Do they think I'm a racist? Do they think I'm this? Do they think everything else that's thrown out there today, right? That's why. That's why we're scared too. But we need to look at this scripture as a charge to each and every one of us as much as it was when this letter was written. We must be ready to answer, even when it's coming at us, not as a loving question, but as a hateful accusation. Because they just opened the door to share scripture and let the Holy Spirit in. Take it. Take it. You be ready for some pushback or negative consequences, 
but take it. Now, you say, that's easy for you to say, Jeremy. You're a pastor. That's true. I've studied a whole lot. I'll do my best to try and equip you. I guarantee you, you spend an hour going through the websites I give you, you'll probably have more knowledge than the people attacking you. Because most people just go off memes. They don't actually go off knowledge. So I can help you there. You say, Jeremy, you went to seminary. I did, but I dropped out. Jack and Mitchell are seminary graduates. I dropped out. So, you know, anyway. It doesn't really take that much to know about the word of God, to know about what's going on in culture. I can equip you with a few hours of work. So if, if these are the conversations that are keeping you from talking about Jesus, get ready, be ready, and share. As our worship team comes forward, I wanna share one more verse with you today. Because the first thing about being ready, and I know this series in the month of July, like I said, it's y'all's fault. Y'all are the ones that said this is what y'all were worried about and wanted to talk about. But you always know, in July, we go a little deeper on some things to try and help build us up to be ready to go out. And so as I share these things with you here, I haven't talked about the gospel as much. I haven't talked about uh, some of those things that we typically share a lot more in our services. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, in those verses we read 13 through 17, he finished it. And the reason he said that they could have confidence and be ready is in verse 18. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And so if you're here today, and I'm, I'm talking about these issues, and they're social issues, they're difficult issues. Trust me, I, I don't feel confident that I can step out and have a conversation and not stick my foot in my mouth or not say something that's gonna offend somebody. Uh, these are very difficult issues. The only reason I can step out and do that much less anything else in this world is because I believe that Jesus came and he did live for me and he died for me. He suffered so that I could be healed and that he paid the price for my sins and that all I have to do is accept him. And so if you're here today and you've been listening to all this and you've been saying, well, Jeremy, I, you're talking about all these things I don't understand, but I don't even understand what it means to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Those words we throw around so easily, saved, believe, accept, you know, receive, trust. If you don't know what those things mean, then believe me, that is the most important question you can ask today. As we worship together, I'm gonna be standing over here to the side and I would love to talk to you today. I would love to answer whatever questions you have, talk to you afterwards if you wanna grab me because I can be ready to give an answer about my faith because I have confidence in the one who died for me and I've accepted him. If you haven't done that today, I would love to talk to you about what that means. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for listening. We challenge you to take some next steps this week. Which issues do you believe outside of criticism of scripture, accepting the claim that the Bible is false? Don't fall into this trap without doing your own study. Email info at pathwaybaptist.com and we will send you details on that specific topic. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com slash connect.